before we get into the interview, I want to make you some money. Is that okay if I make you some money? Okay, good. The way I'm going to make you some money is I'm going to save you some money because on September 13th and September 14th, Blockworks is hosting its Digital Asset Summit in New York yet again. And if you use the code GUIDANCE250, all caps, you can get $250 off your ticket. I will be hosting a macro conversation with Alfonso Pecatiello, Urian Timmer, Daniel DiMartino Booth, and Mike Green. That is just one of many conversations at DOS. The code is only active till Sunday, and the price will only go up, so it really makes sense if you're going to go to get tickets right now. Think the deals end there? No, 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 no. Blockworks Research is the premier institutional crypto research product, and if you use the code GUIDANCE, all lowercase, you can get 50% off on Blockworks Research. Our head of research just wrote a second quarter macro review of all that happened over the past few months. It is free, so if you click the link in the description, you can get that for free, and then use the code GUIDANCE, all lower caps, to get 50% off Blockworks Research. Thank you. Or should I say, you're welcome. I am joined once again by Noel Smith, managing partner of Convex Asset Management. Noel, great to have you back. Thanks for having me back. It's good to have you here, Noel, because you know, roll out a little bit of a red carpet for you because you know it's it's rare on forward guidance that we have a guest make an act uh, an actionable prediction and give specific reasons and specific targets and timelines. And the last time you were here was in late June, mid to late June, so about a month ago. And I think we were just coming out of the most severe drawdown that was due to the FOMC with 75 basis points. And you made the prediction that the S&P 500 would sort of be pinned around, wouldn't, wouldn't crash and it wouldn't, it wouldn't spike a ton higher, but it, especially it wouldn't crash, you know, as many at, at the time had anticipated because of a JP Morgan collar trade. So uh, roughly the level of a 3620, it would be tough for it to go below there. And we're sitting here now on July 27th, and that is exactly what happened. So I guess the question I want to ask you, Noel, is are you a genius or did you just get lucky? Uh, I guess what is genius, you know, is it when luck lines up for you? Um, I think that, you know, the, the decision to talk about that trade was because the timing was right. There was, there were several factors that lined up. One of which was the, uh, the bottom side of that JP Morgan, uh, spread, which was, you know, billions of dollars of notional value. And, uh, also the, the gamma at that point was getting large. So it was a relevant part of that trade. You know, that trade isn't always relevant, but the timing of our last conversation was such that it was relevant. Um, so like all of my trades, I don't know if it's going to work out or if it worked out for the exact reasons that I tried to, you know, illustrate. But that was the trade thesis. It ended up working out. And I think it worked out. I think that the things that we did talk about were a fairly large contributing factor to that. Was it people who bought the other side of the JP Morgan collar? They were, uh, they were long puts or yeah, they were long puts. Yes. So what happens is, is that when the market goes through a long, um, Think of uh, long puts from the marketplace's perspective as being like a magnet. So, you know, the, the force field around the magnet, the further away you get from it, it becomes irrelevant. But when you get right close to the magnet, it has its strongest attraction. So when um, the marketplace starts going down toward the magnet, it kind of goes to it. When that was the part of the thesis where I didn't think it would break materially below it. I also said I didn't think we would get a high rip until that happened. Now, part of what did happen would be the follow-up to that, which is, why has the market been rallying? And from a vol perspective, how is that relevant? How is that tradable? Well, if you look at a lot of the um, the options action within the marketplace recently, you've seen a lot of 
short puts being covered. And as short puts be are covered, they the volatility with associated with those puts starts to compress. It starts to come in as those put positions goes away, go away. And what happens then is that you start to get a more of a natural bid within the index itself. Index being defined as the S and P five hundred. It's a long. That was a very inelegant way of saying. I feel like it's short covering. As all of this uh, volatility starts to just kind of compress and go away, that means that there's more certainty in the market. The amount of schizophrenia that might be baked into the cake is less. And what that means is that the markets will tend to drift higher. And that's, you know, sometimes identified as the VANA trade, you know, the VANA being the, uh, the reaction function of price versus volatility. The old, the old, uh, the old J.P. Morgan collar trade. They bought a put spread, so they bought a put here, and then they sold a put here, so that they get this level of protection. The people in the market making community who bought that put at the bottom, they were long tons of those puts. So as the S and P five hundred was going down, they were buying. They were they were compressing volatility. So yeah, I mean, what have you made of the price action over, over the, since since then? I mean, the index has kind of held pretty steady. Same with the Nasdaq. And then the VIX has been falling. Does that, does that make sense to you? It all makes sense. It's exactly what we just discussed. So think about like, if I said to you, you know, what's the chance you're going to sneeze in the next five seconds? You're like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not really sick. So I don't think I'm going to sneeze. Um, how about if I ask you if you're going to sneeze over the next 10 years? You're like, well, that's probably extremely likely that will happen. So as time marches forward, so say we made a bet for, you know, late July, 2032 and then as time gets narrower and narrower to our terminal part of our bet, that distribution will come in. And what you're, what you're saying is like, okay, we made a bet for 10,000 sneezes. I'm only at like 8,600. So I'm probably going to make money. Pay and up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that, that's kind of how to think about it, which is time versus probable outcome. It's all probabilistic. And as time compresses, as time moves forward and there's less time slices, then the uncertainty goes away. And that's kind of the Vanna trade. Now, to answer your real question. Um, so as the, the dealer community is long a bunch of puts, as the index starts to go through those long strikes, they get short, okay? So say if they, they go to bed flat and they wake up and they're short because the index is down overnight and then they have a delta. They have a short delta and they're making money. So what they have to do to flatten out, and dealers do this, is they buy stock, they buy index, they buy futures, whatever. Let's just say S&P 500 stock because it can be futures, it can be a lot of things, but let's just simpl simplify things and say it's stock. So as they buy stock, the Vanna or the, uh, the volatility will come back in and start to come into line. And that's what I was talking about regarding this magnetic force. As you breach and you start to get more and more short, you cover more and more and more to bring you back into line. Um, or you let it ride, but most market-making firms will not let it ride. They will cover those deltas and they will buy stock if they're short. And what is your outlook on forward volatility? If so, a month ago you thought uh, you wanted to be long S&P 500 because it just wouldn't go below 3620 and maybe short a little bit of volatility, who knows? What's your outlook, let's say, for the next month? Because, you know, it's the summer. People, you know, Noel, we got to get we got to get to the beach. No one on Wall Street is in their office. Everyone's on the beach, right? That's the that's the sort of narrative is nothing happens during the summer. What, what, what do you think? Well, I, the timing of this conversation is just prior to the FOMC decision and meeting. So barring crazy news in the next couple hours or in the next in the presser afterward, after the um, announcement, um, I think Vol has really. There's no really no big reason to buy vol here now. Now, if a crazy decision comes out in a couple hours, of course, this can all change. But as, of, as we sit here right now, if we get 75 bips 
and some kind of a 75. Then in September, we go to 50, maybe 25 a little bit after that. And then we, you know, the, the narrative that we shift in early of next year uh, stays in place. Vol comes in, market goes up. I don't think there's a reason to buy a bunch of vol. And is that S&P 500 vol? And by the way, vol typically, you know, because vol spikes when things go down, typically like it's only really in Bitcoin and commodities that volatility rises as the stock, as the, as the underlying goes up. Obviously mm-hmm. there are tons of exceptions. So when you say be long vol, it's like, it's not equivalent, definitely not equivalent, but it's, it's somewhat, it has a lot to do with being short. So like uh, you, you, if you're long S&P 500 vol, the way you make money is, you know, let's say you buy, you buy puts and then this S&P 500 goes down. And if you're short Delta, you make money. I know you're, you're wincing because what I said was not completely accurate. You make money on the Delta, but if you head <laughs> the Delta, you make money because implied volatility goes up. You're long Vega, right? You're in yeah. long Gamma. Yeah. There we go. So, so volatility. <laughs> uh, so you're right. When I say, when we're doing an interview and I say volatility, let's assume that we're always talking about the S&P 500, not yeah. gold, not uranium, not oil, because those things are totally different, right? Especially and, in bonds. Bo- and bonds, not single stocks. Right. Bond skew is totally different. Single stock skew is totally different. Biotech skew is totally different. All of these things are relevant, but not for this conversation. Let's say that we're talking about volatility is defined by the VIX or the VIX futures, VIX futures options, and volatility in the S&P 500 in aggregate. Now, vol works both ways. You can have vol up and stocks up. And that happened um, you know, when the- um, um, NASDAQ oh whale, summer 2020. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I was trying to think of uh, the name of the guy, but- didn't matter. Um, yeah. So, you know, the same thing with the meme stocks, right? You know, GameStop, AMC, those things were a vol up, stocks up. And then that's also a Vanna trade. So as the vol starts to go up, you know, the movement can also widen out and you can have both of those because volatility is just a, uh, a prediction around a certain number. It is a, uh, a breadth of numbers. So vol up can definitely still happen. If Powell comes out today and says, you know what? 75 bits are off the table. We're going to zero. We're going to go negative. I mean, we're going to have volatility and it's going to be to the upside. So those upside calls, instead of being, you know, 19 vol now, they're going to go to 29 vol because that's probably not too far off. Mm-hmm. And um, so it can, it, can cut, it can cut both ways. So I, I think the question you're a- asking is, what do we do from here? What does vol do? And I was saying that I don't think there is a reason to own a bunch of vol in the short term here for the reasons you just mentioned. We have to go to the beach. No, there is not going to be an August meeting. Um, it's kind of predicted. And as long as Powell doesn't say anything that everyone is not expecting, um, and also GDP tomorrow, assuming that, you know, now that GDP has been magically redefined by the government, um, assuming we do get a negative print tomorrow, and that is an official recession as defined previously. Yeah. And then I still think that we don't really crash. Yes. And, and so there's a big, so just my outlook and, you know, I, I rarely share predictions, but this is like 1149 Eastern time AM on FOMC day. <laughs> My outlook, and this is not some genius call, like everyone who knows what's up is, is thinks this, is it's going to be 75 basis points. And, um, by, and by the way, Noel, if it's actually 100 basis points or 50 basis points, we're just going to delete this so that no, no one will right now. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, so, so it's going to be 75 basis points, uh, whatever that, ha- ha- that happens to price action. I don't know. I want your outlook on that later. But then, yeah, tomorrow from the uh, BEA, we're going to get the uh, advanced estimate of GDP, which... I am pretty sure is going to be negative in inflation adjusted terms, real GDP. Like if you look at the Atlanta Fed uh, guesses from like you know, 7, 10, 15, 20 days out, it's rare that they are wrong by a sufficient margin to make, the, make it positive. So that will be a two quarters in a row of real GDP contraction. But as you say, yes, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary Yellen, 
uh, went on Meet the Press on Sunday, and she's kind of offering that, oh, the first one didn't count because of imports, exports. And, you know, there, there's some legitimacy in that for sure. Um, and then the White House is sort of redefining it. But you're saying that that, that won't be that relevant in markets, and that's really interesting to me because I, I'm very, very sure that people are going to have a lot of fun about this on Twitter. Not fun, but people are going to be, you know, going crazy. On, on Twitter, they'll be saying, this is a recession, blah, 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 blah. But the price action could be very calm. And it's ultimately the price drives narratives, not, not the other way around, always. Absolutely. So just because we're in a recession doesn't mean we can't go up because we're already down. So it's always base effects, right? Where do you go from now? Where do you go from here? So if the narrative, what I'm saying is if the narrative that we shift to a more um, easing environment, more easy environment around the winter, next winter, we go up. Right. And okay, so your your outlook is volatility is not the best thing to, to own, implied volatility and realized volatility, not the greatest, greatest time in August because everyone's going to the beach and, if, and there's, no, there's no news otherwise. But here's the thing. Okay, so if VIX was at 40, being short volatility would be good given you know, your outlook, but the VIX is at 24. So shorting volatility, you're not getting much juice there, right? No, um, I disagree. And being long volatility or short volatility is only good as a function of where you bought it or sold it relative to where it is now. So if you think volatility is uh, a sale at four and it realizes two, you made money. I made money in 2017 with the VIX at nine uh, because it realized six. Now, did I think that VIX was high at nine? Yeah, that's why I sold it. Um, but it could have gone to 12 very easily, in which case I would have lost money. So it is a function of where did you put on the trade? You right. know, is, are you making money in Tesla today or are you, are you um, losing money in Tesla today? I don't know. Where'd you buy it? Yeah. Where'd you sell it? You know, so it's always a function of where it's about exceedance. When you're talking about volatility, again, it's this probability distribution. So if it is outside of the probability distribution that you purchased it, when you, if, assuming you purchased it, then you make money. If it is outside that probability distribution when you sold it, and you sold it for higher, then you make money. So just because the VIX is at 24 doesn't really mean anything. It just means that's what you know the 30-day implied forward volatility is. But that doesn't mean that it's a good sale or a bad sale. It's a good sale if you sell at 24 and it realizes 12. Great. Right. And it's really bad. You know, if you shorted it on March 10th, 2020 at 60 and then it went to 80, that was not a good short. In 2020, for sure. And again, this goes about this goes into the concept of exceedance. You have to exceed what is priced into the marketplace, otherwise you will not make money. Because the the, the counterparties, the people that you're trading with, that this is all they think about. So they are usually right because there is an army of people with giant heads and giant brains with giant computers. And it's all they try to do is figure, figure out how to take your money. So you either have to have better information, um, a better take on the same public information, or just be lucky. Um, those three things are usually what you need, maybe all three. So the base effects of volatility in 2020, there was a lot of systematic vol sellers. There was a relative calm in the marketplace, even though a lot of people would argue that the market was already kind of broken. Um, and then the pandemic just exacerbated this. But what happened was you came from a, a, a steady state of relatively low vol to extremely high vol. Nobody knew if the planet was going to be shut down from a commerce standpoint, standpoint um, for a long time. And then once the Fed came in very aggressively and started cutting rates, you know, 100 bips at a time, um, the market took off. And vol definitely exceeded the prices that, like, I was long vol in that time period, but I bought that volatility in, like, December. 
Did I know that we're going to have a global pandemic? No. More accurately, I know this is, I never talked about this. I bought a bunch of all in Broadcom and a bunch of other names on Apple earnings in January. Cause you know, at that point the Wuhan virus had already been discussed. And the, the thesis on my, my long vol trade was, um, hey, Tim Cook is going to come out on the Apple call and say something like, yeah, Apple products are amazing. You should go buy, um, buy an iPhone. But our supply chain is going to be disrupted because of this sniffle that's going around in China. And a lot of our stuff comes from China. And therefore, we're going to lower guidance. And on that, I had bought a bunch of volatility. And you know what happened? It died. Nothing. I lost money on those trades. And so it was front month. It was one month, two month volatility. Not yeah. Long, yeah. Okay. It was earnings so trades. It, it, the volatility died by via theta or whatever before the pandemic happened. Before, before March. Yeah. The pandemic was already something that I was very aware of, and I put some trades on, anticipating negative earnings calls in January, and it just never materialized. But some of the larger, more macro uh, hedges and trades I had on that I put on in December and January, those worked out great. And that's part of the reason we made money in March of 2020. Yeah. And I, by pure luck, happened to buy a very out, a short dated out of the money put option on a, a very volatile name. And I was amazed at how much money it made. I mean, it's just like, because that's I was you're long the, the volatility. So you had lots of Vega and it's like, if you bought something that had an implied volatility of 50 and then the implied volatility goes to 200, like, yep. It's pretty, it's pretty wonderful stuff. That's, that's the beautiful thing. And the scary thing about options is they can go so much further than anybody can ever guess, you know, like guys that were short GameStop calls or whatever else, like, Oh, this stock is stupid. It's never going to go anywhere. And you know, next thing you know, the, the, the calls they sold for two bucks are trading at like 90. Yeah. Uh, it's just nuts. And that happens. Yeah. Okay. So that's the single. So I just want to say, because you think not be, uh, long volatility is not a good bet. Being long volatility is not a good bet now. That means you think that, you know, the VIX could go below 20, even though we're kind of in a, a unofficial recession. Yeah, I totally, I totally do. Um, so I have long vol positions on, so I don't want to like, you know, be the reverse of talking my book. Um, you know, it's just in everybody's best interest to, to be honest about this stuff. So I have some downside long vol. But that doesn't mean that I expect the market to go to 2,500. You know, I have car insurance, but that doesn't mean I'm going to throw my car into a wall. Um, that just means that I have this on because it's part of what we do as a business. So our investors know that if the market does go to 2,500, we're not going to be, you know, blown out. It's quite the opposite. Um, so I think that going out today and buying a bunch of all, absent the news that is coming out in two hours, um, I, I don't think there's a good reason to do that. I would have to be convinced pretty hard as to why you're going to go out and start just loading up the bus, the boat with a bunch of volatility yeah. right now. Mm. And so that is the world of the indices, the S&P 500. There are other indices like the NASDAQ, Russell, whatever. What about single stock volatility? Because I know the hallmark of this year is people own a bunch of Carvana at 300 and then it goes to 30. So they get just absolutely decimated in Carvana. And then they're like, oh my God, stocks are crashing, stocks are crashing. When in reality, Carvana is crashing, but the S&P 500 is only down 20%. And as you rightly point out in an article, like being long S&P 500 volatility has not been as good of a trade as you would think. Whereas being long Carvana volatility, <laughs> extremely good. So you're making the case for my dispersion trade. That is a dispersion trade. And for people who don't know this, we did not talk about this ahead of time. So exactly that. So what is a dispersion trade? It's being short volatility in the index and it's being long single name 
single name volatility. So Carvana volatility goes nuts, you make money. Uh, index volatility doesn't go as nuts, you make money. And then you just collect theta on top of that. So you can make money in Carvana, you can make money in an index, and then you can make money all around. And that is the point of a dispersion trade. I didn't know that, you know, um, Coinbase was going to be down 80% or whatever, you know, some of these crazy moves. Um, but if we have those names on and we are long volatility in them, and then we hedge that off with being short volatility in the index, we can make money three times. Um, and that's exactly why we do that trade and exactly why that has been a profitable trade for us in 2022. So it definitely has been. I'm not at all surprised to hear that it's been a profitable trade in 2022. Has the market sort of caught up with you where it's like it's learned its lesson where it used to be pricing Carvana puts at 55 volatility and now it's pricing them at 155 volatility. And if so, how do you yeah. navigate that? Um, you know that those are, you know, so as an experienced trader, you know that those things are very transitory. Um, so we'll use GameStop as an example because we had a decent position in that. So when GameStop um, first started going up, the vol started going up incrementally and then the market makers learned really fast. They needed to massively widen their spreads and massively adjust their, like my, my vols only go to 1,000 and they were banked at 1,000. I don't know if vol was 1,200 or 1,001. Yeah, 1, yeah. There was some, I saw some 1,300 vol games. Yeah. yeah. I don't even know what they were because this, this, the, the 500 strike straddle was priced at like 500. <laughs> so this stock basically either had to go to a thousand or to zero for you to make money on that straddle. Um, the idea that it could go to a thousand when it just went from 50 to 500 is not that nuts. Um, it didn't, and it, that ended up being the high. But my point is, is that yes, the marketplace figures out very fast when they're losing money to stop losing money. And how they do that is to either widen the spreads or adjust their vols so that they can stop losing money. That's the point. Right. So how do you navigate that if the Carvana put is now 150 vol? I'll tell you what I do. Um, I, what I typically do is I go out and I will bid uh, spreads for what I think is greater than Theo. In other words, if Theo on a spread is a dollar, I'll try to pay as close to zero as possible. Specifically, what I do in GameStop is I will go out there and bid call spreads for literally zero. Um, and you right. have to leg it, right? You can't, nobody's going to trade that as a package with you. So yeah, you, have, yeah. you have to take leg risk. Um, and I just, You'll get filled on one and not filled on the other. That's right. That's what I mean by leg risk because you might get yeah, filled yeah. on one. So you'll buy a call and you'll sell a put or, you know, say, say you're doing your call spread. And you want to sell. No, a call. We, have, we have a podcast here. Come on. We got to explain what leg risk is. I, I just, I didn't know what it was. I just assumed from context, leg, the folks at home. Yeah. Leg, leg risk is when, you know, you want to do a spread. Say you want to buy a call spread, which means you're buying a call and you're also selling a further out of the money call. Um, what you're doing and if you're legging it is you're doing one of those two sides not at the same time. So you'll do the, the sell side first or the, the buy side first. And then your, your computer logic will tell you to, to do the other side next. So you're always legged out for maybe one option or some number that you put into your logic. Um, so I do that. And that's how I navigate really high environments. My advice to people in general in a really high vol environment is to use spreads. Um, because the, the chance that you're going to beat the new, new information and exceed the new, new expectancy, which goes back to our, you know, our exceedance goes back to our, my, pre my previous comment. So if you've already blown through exceedance, you know, it's kind of like fool me once, fool me twice, right? They're going to raise their prices so high so that you're not really going to make money. Um, so that's why I say making these bets via spreads is usually much more prudent and much, it's just, it's a much more sustainable strategy. And how, 
how do you go about finding the stocks that you want to buy puts on or put spreads on in order to go along their, their volatility? Like, you know, what, what, why did he, was it, let's say that you made a lot of money in Carvana. I'm sure it's some other stock, but like, why, why Carvana? And why, why did you not, you know, go long puts on Walmart or whatever, even though Walmart not done, had done poorly the past few days, but. So yeah, Walmart's a different example because that's based on Ford guidance, earnings, Ford and guidance and uh, inventories. Um, but so let's stick with Carvana since you use it as an example. Um, if I wanted to, so if I wanted to be long vol in Carvana after it's already gone down. So in other words, to say, I think it's going to bounce, but I don't know. Um, I would do it via call spreads and I would limit my upside simply because the, the, the volatility that I'm buying in order to put the, this position on is so high. Even if the stock rallies, you know, 20% or whatever else, it's quite likely you won't make money. So, um, I don't trade Carvana. I haven't traded it. I don't yeah, know, maybe yeah. ever. Um, so, but the point of it is, is it can be XYZ, right? If, if XYZ goes down 50% and it could go back up to being down 30%, your calls can easily die because the volatility is adjusted for this new expectation. That's why I, I always speak in terms of exceedance. You have to out-trade them. You have to either be more right or more lucky than your counterparty. And if you're trading with market makers, it is the sole function of their business is to beat you, you know, beat, beat the marketplace. And in aggregate, they usually are right. Yes. And I would say that the average retail investor, let's say I'm the average retail investor, against Bill Ackman or Warren Buffett, like they could, yeah, they'll pick Microsoft instead of Apple and they'll do a better job. But like Jack Farley, the average regional investor trading against Noel Smith or, you know, Citadel, it's, it's much, it's a much harder game. It's like, you know, you can beat a really smart game board player at checkers, but beating that in a chess is, is not. Yeah. So I think for a lot of people watching this video, including myself, you know, often option trading volatility itself is not a good way to make money unless you really know what you're doing. Would you agree? So, you know, everyone thinks of Citadel as being like, um, you know, this omniscient death star that just always knows what's going on at all times. And, you know, I'm from Chicago. I'm from the Chicago volatility community. I, I'm personally friends with people there. Um, I know for a fact that they are human beings and they make mistakes and not even that they make mistakes all the time, but they don't have everything that exists in order to make money. If that was the case, then... Ken Griffin would somehow have more houses that are bigger and more, more expensive. Um, they have great information and they have great ability to execute. But in, in, the, in the first one second of you beating them is very low. In the next five seconds, it gets incrementally higher. The chance of you buying an Apple call and then being right an hour later is, you know, that's not unreasonable at all. The chance of you buying an Apple call and being right two days later 50-50 bet at best. You know, it's, it's not a problem. So their focus is beating you on the very small time slices. So don't be afraid of these large market makers. They're not trying to say that, you know, Apple or Carvana isn't going to go up or isn't going to go down because their time slices are very small. So if you have an opinion in Carvana or Apple, um, the market makers are there and they're, they're giving you tight bid offer spreads and they're providing you with liquidity. So they're not the, like the, you know, the evil empire that a lot of people like to think that they are. Mm. No, switching gears a bit, you wrote a piece recently about the correlation between stocks and bonds. You say it's a hidden risk to the 60-40 portfolio, 60% uh, stocks, 40% bonds. That has been a rock uh, for 
institutional and retail investors for you know half a century. Why were you so worried about it? You wrote a piece about December, and how is it that you you know sort of predicted this, given that stocks and bonds have had a horrible year as well as they've they've failed to be a ballast for each other. Whereas normally when stocks fall, bonds go up, yields go down, but that is the exact opposite. And both stocks and bonds have failed investors this year. Why? Uh, yeah, why, why are you writing about this? Um, I was writing about it, you know, whenever you're putting something out publicly, you know, even if it's not a prediction, it kind of is because, you know, you're time stamping it and you know that it's going to go out at a certain date and people can point at it and be like, yeah, you know, you're an idiot. Um, the reason I wrote the piece is kind of what's come to bear. Um, the relationship between stocks and bonds is predicated on a low interest rate environment uh, where, you know, bonds have been a, in a bull market since, you know, I was in high school and it turns out that was a pretty long time ago. Um, actually, junior high. Uh, so really nobody else that's trading actively today, other than the extreme geezers have been trading back then. And then the data sets that they may be using are really not that relevant. So this data is mostly out of sample for almost everybody. Um, but the, the notion that bonds go down in an inflationary environment and the, the traditional negative correlation between equities, equities here and bonds here or bonds and equities, that becomes positively correlated in an inflationary environment. One of my one of my trades is being short volatility by also being short put spreads in, in the bond complex. Um, that trade totally breaks in an inflationary environment because it's kind of a knockoff of a risk, risk parity trade. Sorry, no, say that trade again. Say that trade again. The trade is being short volatility. In stocks or bonds? Stocks. Okay, yep. And then also being short volatility via short, bond put spreads. So what that means, if you, if you noodle this through, what I'm doing is I'm being long bonds yeah. with, with a theta component, right? Cause I'm short put spreads, which means I want bonds to kind of go up, but I'm also short volatility, which means I want stocks to kind of go up right in general. And if the stocks do crash, Bonds will go up, meaning that you make money on your short bond puts. Yeah, there you yeah. go. It's, the, it's, a fancy, it's a fancy risk parity. A fancy yes. risk, so risk parity is it's not just stocks and bonds. It involves commodities. I've gotten called out on that before, um, so I want to be careful. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a way to exploit the negative correlation between stocks and bonds, but the correlation has been positive this year. Correct. So risk parity involves many different asset classes and varying different ratios. But for the sake of simplicity of our conversation, let's say that it's a 60-40 portfolio. A 60-40 portfolio, which, you know, millions of Americans have um, is breaking currently. And I thought was going to break in 2022 because of inflation. And the idea that inflation now 9.1% CPI was something I didn't necessarily think about, but the idea that um, the correlation could go positive and stay positive for a long time between stocks and bonds in a rising interest rate environment was something that, I mean, I've been talking about it for many years, but I decided to like really press upon it where I was willing to write a paper and throw it out publicly so that I thought that the risks that um, have been borne out in 2022 were prescient at that, at that time. Noel, do you have any reasons why the correlation turns positive in an in inflationary environment? Correlation, the Correlations of anything are related way more than people want to talk about. People say, well, what's the correlation between Ether and Carvana? Um, well, think about, it, think about it in the extremes. Say the S&P 500 went to 20 million, okay? And everybody has you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. What's the chance you buy some Ether or Solana or Bitcoin? The chance is much higher. 
what's the chance you buy a boat? It's also much higher. Even if you don't even want a boat, you're like, ah, you know, it's like 13th on my list of things to buy, but I got a lot of money. So fine. Number 13 it is. Conversely, say the S&P 500 goes to two. Plane two. Um, what's the chance you go out and buy a bunch of ether? Not very high. What's the chance you buy a boat? Not very high um, because there's a correlation between Ether, boats, and the S&P 500. Now, those are extremely wide parameters for illustrative purposes, but they do, if you start to narrow them down, you can start to put a fine point on these correlations and realize that they do change with time. And the idea that uh, Carvana trades with interest rates is a real thing. Um, the idea that this is something that a lot of people should figure out that debt is the relative of equity prices because Jack Farley stock price is partly priced. The market price of Jack Farley stock is a function of Jack Farley's ability to get money. And however much you have in your pocket right now, then however much you have in your bank, and then however much credit you have access to. And if you have terrible credit, then you have to go down to what's in your pocket right? Or what's in the bank. And then if you don't have anything in the bank, then you have to go with what's, what's, what's in your pocket. And if you're down to pocket change, then your, your stock price is really low and your volatility is extremely high because you will do whatever it takes to feed yourself. And so Jack Farley stock at that time gets very volatile and very low. And so if interest rates go up, your chance of getting this credit for a good price is very low. Right. And Jack Farley Corp, we get financing on our bonds. When we issue bonds, we pay a, a yield that is relative to the treasury yield. So if interest rates go up, uh, we pay a higher rate. But then there's also the credit spread that's unique to the, the Jack Farley Corp. I think that the, the historically, the reasons that bonds do well when stocks go down is because bonds really are dollars, right? Like if you have a lot of money, uh, you, it's, you typically hold dollars in like short-term treasury bills in a, rather than a bank deposits because banks only insure up to 250000 I'm sure there's like some sort of insurance you could buy. But, you know, for a lot of it, like when JP Morgan, their assets are either loans, short-term treasuries, long-term treasuries, as well as reserves with the Fed. But, you know, it's, there's no really such thing as like money as people think of it, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be bank deposits. It can be gold. It can be, you know, lumber, right? It can be all kinds of things that, you know, money and its fundamental thing is, you know, something right. that people are going to use as a medium of exchange. But you're and right, then because you know, the S&P 500 is denominated in dollars and treasuries really are just dollars, it makes sense that treasuries would increase in value. Also, I mean, the real fact is that when stocks crash, uh, people are more, uh, much less sanguine on growth and inflation. So long-term bond yields fall. The Fed is going to cut interest rates because we got to, you know, save everything. So short-term interest rates fall and that's, that's worked. But now, now it doesn't work. Well, for, for people that are watching or are listening to this, um, my advice would be get a really good handle on the bond market and what interest rates do to all of your other investments, whether it be gold, you know, Ethereum, or Carvana, because it is a relevant factor into the pricing and the forward expectations of all of those things. So, you know, it, as somebody who I started as an options trader and I became more of an equities trader, and then you just kind of back into the bond game almost by accident at some point because yeah. you realize that interest rates are driving all of these decisions at some level. So you just have to start learning the bond market if you're going to be good at predicting stock markets. The, there is a fundamental theory. It's not a technical theory. It's a fundamental theory that you know stocks are based based on their future cash flows, which are discounted back to the present using interest rates. So. When interest rates are at 0%, a speculative growth stock might be very enticing. But if interest rates are at 5%, they're much less enticing. How much of the price action that you track in the market every day 
confirms or denies that theory. Because, for example, you know, when interest rates crashed in March of 2020, Tesla did not do well. But Tesla, te- the real Tesla bull market started as interest rates were extremely low, but, but rising. So low and rising is much better than crashing. But also, yes. now they're, they're steadily rising, and that's at their, you know, they're rising to higher levels, and that's very bad. Stick with our, so we'll stick with our Jack Farley analogy. Um, if Jack wants to do stuff, and he wants money to do that stuff, how much of Jack Farley Co., can he, how much debt can you take on at 0% interest? Infinity. Um, and if it's maybe it's a de minimis number, like, you know, two or 3%, you can still take on a lot of debt to fund your future ideas. Okay. So now now say debt is 50%. Um, how much debt can you take on? Well, probably none, unless you think you can exceed that, right? You've got to be able to make at least that, uh, that vig back and then some. So that's, that's, that's the kind of theory that goes behind this, which is when interest rates are low, you know, people can fund their harebrained schemes. And if interest rates are high, you can't. Noel, so you said that you backed into the bond game. What have you, you know, how do you, how do you view trading bonds? Do you trade just the volatility of bonds? I know you focus on the 10-year note, treasury note a lot. Or do you trade the volatility specifically? And is there anything different about trading treasury volatility uh, as compared to uh, stock volatility? It's a good question, Jack. Um, I don't think anybody's ever asked that. So stock skew and volatility has a certain shape and personality, right? As you talked about before, Carvana goes down and then vol goes up, right? But bond volatility is not like that. Bond volatility shifts back and forth all the time. Might be skewed to the upside, might be skewed to the downside. It might not have any skew at all. So uh, puts versus calls have a totally different um, reaction function to what's going on. And the bond market is a very different thing to trade than the stock market, but they are so useful to understand both of them because of the correlation between these items. So, you know, if I just ask, you know, Joe Blow on the street, is there a relationship between the price of your mortgage and interest rates? They would say, yeah, totally. Okay. Well, then there's a price relationship between a home builder stocks and interest rates, right? Yeah. Well, we can, that's a very, very easy step to, to get. And, but if you really noodle it through, there is a relationship between interest rates and everything. And, you know, understanding the stock market and understanding the bond market are just, you know, it's like, you know, it's the, the, the same thing in a lot of ways. They're just different versions right. of the same thing. So the interest in trading the, the bond market, you know, I focus on the 10 year note simply because that's where the, the, the paper is. I tend to generally ex- express my opinions in bonds in options simply because um, I, I'm comfortable in the derivatives market and I feel like I can get asymmetry there um, versus if I'm wrong in uh, you know, the futures or in you know, TLT or whatever, then I can be wrong you know, all the way down or all the way up. You know, it's, it cuts both ways. So I typically like to do spread options. I spread things against each other within the, the futures market or the options on the futures market. And that way I can have a very defined loss if I am wrong. That's why I do that. But people should really try to understand the bond market, however resources they can find and look at what's going on with the, the cash bonds look at what's going on with the bond futures, what's going on with bond volatility. You know, right now bond volatility is as high as I've ever seen it. And, you know, it's, it's difficult to trade that from a quantitative standpoint because the, historical data that I would look at to inform my future opinion or my current decision on my future view is out of sample. 
I don't have reliable data going back to 1981. And how much would I even trust it if I did? I wouldn't because it's not the same. So, um, you know, the bond market, because it's out of sample for everybody, the bond market, you know, volatility is extremely high and really nobody knows what's going on, specifically like Fed Powell. And uh, I kind of think that they might even stop doing Ford guidance um, to plug the show name uh, because I, I think it's making it easier for them to have egg on their face with their, you know, they have to go on camera, talk about what they think is going to happen and they're wrong all the time. So I think that they might eliminate the, the concept of Ford guidance, which I think Bernanke started um, simply because I think they want to stop embarrassing themselves. Yes. I recently interviewed Nick Timoros and in one of his recent articles, he wrote exactly that, that the Federal Reserve may give less forward guidance in the future and uh, sort of close ranks about where interest rates are, are going to be. We'll see. Again, we're just past noon Eastern time on July 27th. Shortly, uh, Jay Powell will, will uh, address the nation. So, Noel, why are you more keen to short equity volatility, S&P 500 volatility, than you are to short treasury volatility? Because if treasury volatility is on the 10-year note as high as you've ever seen it, uh, I mean, that sounds like a pretty good time to short. I mean, and if, if there's no FOMC meeting in August, why not? You know, that's a really good question. So if something is high, why wouldn't you sell it? And if something is low, why wouldn't you buy it? That's the- I'm a simple guy, Noel. No, no, that, that's a deceptively, um, that's a deceptively good question. Then the reason is, is because almost all of my trades have a quantifiable justification for them. Okay. And if bond vol goes up from here or down from here, I know it's a wasted opportunity. Um, do I think that bond vol is probably a sell from here? I kind of do. But why? Show me the number, Noel. Show me the data. Why do I want to sell this, you know, strangle or this straddles or whatever else? And give me a mathematical justification for your judgment. I don't have one. That's why I don't. That's why I don't do it. Because what it is, would a mathematical judgment that is sound to you look like? I'm figuring it's not. Totally. You're looking at oh, there's a resistance line at at uh, no. 3.48% on the ten year yield. No. Yeah. So the ten year note futures and options are priced in ticks. So I'll talk in ticks, not dollars. Um, so say for instance the uh, you know the uh, uh, GDP is coming out and we think that you know it'll move the bond. Well, the bond uh, straddle right now is priced at roughly one dollar and three ticks. Okay, so there's 64 ticks in a bond straddle. Um, so let's call that, you know, 67 ticks. Um, I don't want to get too wonky because that can be confusing. People aren't used to talking in ticks. But the, yeah. my point my point is, is that the, the vol is very high. And if you don't have any basis, you know, when, you, when you're pricing something in the, in, when you're modeling something out, say you want to build a model for uh, trading bonds, what you do is you look at all the past data and then you use that to inform your future decisions or your future uh, trades. And so say, for instance, a jobs number comes out and you think that bonds usually move 10 ticks and it's always 10 ticks. It's no matter what, it's always magically 10 ticks for some crazy reason. And then what that means is that you can buy straddles for nine ticks and you can sell straddles for 11 ticks because you will always make money either way if it always comes out at a 10 tick move. But now say, for instance, your straddle is, um, or the data is now anything. It can be one tick or it can be a billion ticks. How much do you want to sell a straddle for when it can trade a billion ticks? I don't know, a billion and one ticks, right? Because that's that's the right price because any number higher than it will trade is the right number to sell straddles. My point is going back to exceedance. If you don't know what exceedance is going to be, 
you know, if I'm asking you about, you know, your future sneezes, but you have some new sneezing disease, you know, your model is out the window. You're like, well, I'm 30. I've been sneezing, you know, usually once a day for the last 30 years. I can model that out. But now I've got this new sneezing disease and I sneeze 10 times a minute. Well, my model is totally broken. I can no longer use 30 years of historical precedent to make a current decision. And that's the problem in the bond market. And that's why the bond market is losing liquidity and is very difficult to trade right now because the idea that it's high and therefore, um, you know, I should sell it. Well, why? Why is it high? Well, because I have a totally different environment. I have a new sneezing disease and or, you know, inflation is higher than it's been in 40 years. It's kind of the same analogy. I have new, new data that is taking all of my data out of sample and I don't have a mathematical, quantifiable decision that is going to be um, justified based on data. Uh, to say it's high and therefore I think I'm going to sell it, fine. I mean, that's as good a reason as any, but to say that you you think that um, vol is high because of XYZ in your data, you don't have that data because nobody has that data. Therefore, your your trade is kind of a guess. Do you expect implied volatility on the 10-year note futures to collapse after, not collapse, but to fall after tomorrow's GDP reading? Yes. Noel, let's move back into the world of equities. I have two questions I want to I put by you. The first one is, do you think that the fact, the dispersion trade, the fact that uh, single stocks have been crashing while the index has held, has been going down, but it's been kind of holding firm and hasn't really seen you know, true capitulation. Do you think that has to do with the, uh, what's it called? The correlation between the stocks in the S&P 500. That is, as Tesla is going down, ExxonMobil is going up. As Carvana is going down, but whatever, I don't know, uh, EOG Resources is, is going up. And um, do you, is that correlation ahistorical? Is there sort of a, is, it, is, it, is that to be expected? And do you have an outlook on the forward correlation where, you know, expert, X1 Mobile and Tesla can go down together? Um, so part of a correlation trade is seeing what has capitulated Carana, um, what hasn't capitulated ExxonMobil. So, and trading those things against each other. So the real way to, to put, to assemble a real dispersion book is to figure out your sector weighting and how do you do your sector weighting? Well, you do that based on the information you're getting from a lot of times the bond market. So if you think that interest rates are going up, you would want to be longer vol, that is to say more bearish on things that are interest rate sensitive. And you would want to be less long vol on things that can do well when rates go up. So once you kind of fiddle that through in your head, you can start to weight your different sectors and your different names juxtaposed to each other. And that's where the real alpha is generated. The idea that you can just go out there and sell us some P500 puts and, and calls and, you know, straddle strangles, whatever, and then go out and buy the exact Vega weighted notional number of Vegas in all 504 names or whatever it is now um, is nonsense. There's no edge there. You cannot make money reliably doing that above and beyond luck. So is the real way to create alpha is to, to time your weighting to time the exit and the entry and then to weight sectors against each other. So in this situation, you would see something like a greater weighting in growth in volatility terms, not greater weighting in terms of del uh, deltas, right? I'm buying more volatility in growth because I think that growth can move more, yes. um, which is borne out. I am buying less volatility in something that I think will do well, like energy, um, because I think that ExxonMobil will not crash. Now, ExxonMobil's kind of crashed up, but- that's a different 
that's a different conversation, but that is a real way to create alpha within a dispersion book is to figure out your sector weightings. Yes. I think that is such a good point. And yeah, I've anecdotally seen that where, you know, if, if TLT is down 2%, like I would be shocked if the NASDAQ is not down 2%. In fact, I, you know, there, there have been a handful of days where TLT crashes and the NASDAQ crashes. And I'm like, wow, this is different. But, mm-hmm. uh, so when you said you, you think interest rates are going to go up. Is that because you see the forward interest rate curve, fed fund futures, Euro dollar, LIBOR, whatever, pick your poison, or because you just have a retired Perry view, like, Oh, I, I have a macro view. I think interest rates are going to go up. So this is, you know, some of the voodoo in it, right? I don't have data that everybody else doesn't have. Um, you know, this is like a golden era for data. It's never been better in my lifetime, anybody's lifetime to get access to a lot of data. Now that data comes out of a fire hose and there's, you know, it's very difficult to figure out what's actionable and what isn't actionable. Um, but you know, you can get more information now than you ever had been able to get ever. Um, so how do we interpret this data so as to make it out of consensus so that we can make money? Because if you just use the data that's readily available to you, that's readily available to everybody, your trade will be consensus because the consensus is just the aggregate of all the opinions. Um, So what we do is we lean into this stuff incrementally and that's the voodoo part of it. There is always some subjectivity to the trade because if it was all quantitative, um, this is borne out in the data, it's oftentimes difficult to, to provide real alpha. So, because what you do, if you add up all these zillions of numbers, you come up with the same thing everybody else has come up with, which is the Fed fund futures are here, the Euro dollar futures are there. And well, I guess I'm just trying to, I'm kind of in the meat of the bell curve and there's no trade, right? The options are already reflecting this. Everybody already knows this. The straddle is widened to reflect these differences of opinion and there's no edge. So by the time you you trade with friction, the bid offer spread because you have to take somebody else's offer, and then you know you're even incrementally tiny bit wrong, that adds up to tiny little losses, and you just continuously bleed money. So again, you have to be able to make some kind of out of consensus trade, otherwise you're just creating commissions for the clearing firm. Yes. Okay. So one consensus trade now, not consensus on the mainstream news networks, not consensus, certainly at the Federal Reserve, but consensus in the euro dollar futures market, the Fed fund futures market, is that there will be a Fed pivot at the end of this year, if not the beginning of next year. And you can see that by the curve inversion, uh, where you know projected interest rates, forward interest rates uh, for Fed funds and euro dollars are lower in March of 2023 than they are in December of 2022. What side of the trade would you take on that? Who, who are you going with? The euro dollar curve market or the Fed? So yeah. It's priced really fairly right now. And so it's priced based on a couple of different uh, presuppositions. So the, the swiftness and the shallowness or deepness of the recession is relevant. And what that's doing is informing the timing of the pivot. So the, the calculus is going something like, well, Powell wants his job. So he has to try to not get fired from the incumbent party. And in order to do that, he will try to not either, he has a very difficult job where he has to tame inflation and not break the market. So this middle ground is kind of what the Fed fund futures and Euro dollar futures are pricing. They don't know. It's, it's not a, it is not a crystal ball. It is just a price discovery reflection of what's happening right now. And that can change at two Eastern uh, with the FOMC decision. Um, but if we go into a, dil- a really deep recession, uh, the idea is that that pivot would be pulled forward. Uh, if we go into a very shallow recession, it might be pushed out with a higher terminal rate in the um, 
you know, the overnight lending rate. Um, but nobody knows, right? And so what's the trade? Um, the, the trade is probably long, but the idea that we go to like, you know, 3,200 or something like that prior to that, it's completely on the table. I don't know any more than anybody else. But if I'm looking at the options market, and this is like, um, this is a, an important point. If you look at what they do, not what they say, because there's a lot of people like me that go on media or whatever and talk about stuff, but I talk about trades because it drives me nuts when people just talk about theory because yes. ultimately what I want to know is I've got a green button, I've got a red button. Which one do I pack? Because I don't exactly. know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you're, you're teeing me up. So I just, I just got to go off. Like I feel like people can have a 10-year thesis about the fall of the euro or the yen is going to replace the dollar, but like is the dollar going to go up or is it going to go down in the next one month, three months, six months right. or year, you know, like, and if, if their thesis is extremely non-actionable and I think that's totally legit, then they should like say it, you know, the other total move to do and I've seen this all the time is I'm short. Uh, I think the S and P 500 will be, I'm bearish on the S and P 500, but I think the next month will be bullish. <laughs> so you, you build in both sides of the trade and yeah. the, obviously that can be a legitimate view, but it also can be an effective tool for obfuscation. That's a chicken shit answer if you ask me, um, yeah. because it's not actionable. Like I said, you know, I, you know, I look at this as, as, as I want to distill everything down to green button, red button, peck, peck. I don't know which you tell me. That's why I'm watching this video. That's because I want you to give me information that I don't have right now so I can make money. And I, I'm, I'm very sensitive to that. That's what I want. When I, when I watch a video on YouTube or on whatever I do, uh, I want that person to give me information that I can use to make money for me and my investors. That's it. That's the point. Um, so when you go into these, you know, ethereal conversations about, you know, whatever, what the Fed may or may not do, and it's more ideological or maybe ephemeral than it would be to be actionable. While maybe intellectually interesting, it's not actionable. So I don't ultimately care. So going into, you know, how do you trade this, um, based on volatility, again, look at what they're doing, not what they're saying. Cause a lot of people that talk in the media, don't either run money, don't run substantial money, or don't have a track record, or don't make money. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, these guys just don't make money or, or provide alpha. Maybe they hug an index. Um, and if you look at what the consensus in the smartest paper is doing, generally speaking, they are saying that nobody is reaching for volatility. When nobody is reaching for volatility, they're either wrong in mass or we're going to have more of what is happening now, which is the market is going down, not crashing down. And that is a distinction with a difference going down, but the rate of change of that going down is, yeah. is very relevant to the options market. Not March, 2020. So that when you say they're not buying volatility, are you talking about specifically S and P 500 volatility and not, not right. the Euro dollar options volatility? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Generally speaking, when I say, when I say volatility without giving it a specific tag, yes. uh, let's just assume that we're talking about S and P 500. Do you, so everyone talks about how the Euro dollar is so smart and you know, I, there's definitely something to that. But do you think that the S&P 500 options volatility market is smart? In other words, if people are buying tons of volatility, that means that something's going to happen. And if they're not, as they are now, that means it's going to be pretty chill on the way down. <laughs> the euro dollar market is extremely smart and extremely big. And um, it's you know, the biggest paper there is out there, really. Yeah. Um, but it can be really one-sided for a long time. So people that I know from the market-making community in the euro dollars, what happens is they're all standing around in the pit in Chicago and then, you know, a giant pile of, of paper gets dumped on their heads and they're all wearing it. They're like, oh man, now we all have the same position and we're all losing money at the same level. And then, you know, the, the tide goes the other way and then now they're all on the other side of the trade. So, you know, ideally when you're a trader, what you want is, you know, you want to have Theo right in the middle and you want to have your bid offer spread and you make money on the bid offer spread and, 
that's how you make money. You have no opinion whatsoever in the instrument. You're just making bid offer spreads. But in reality, what happens is, and especially in the euro dollar market, you know, um, some central bank economists will say, okay, rates are going up. So they go out and they, you know, they buy, uh, you know, tons of euro dollar puts or something like that. And then the, the entire euro dollar trading community ends up having the same trade. So these things can go a little bit longer uh, and be more painful than some people who aren't market makers understand. So that's why these things get stretched because a lot of the participants have to wiggle their way out of being saddled with a position that they don't necessarily want. And it, it, those things can be reflected in the price. You know, say for instance, you, you know, you love BMW cars, right? Um, and so because of that, you know, and you have, you know, 200 grand sitting in your checking account and then you end up buying five BMWs, but the price of BMWs goes to, you know, 10% of what you think they're worth and you, and you want to buy more, you might not have available capital. So that, you know, you want to buy them or maybe you're short BMWs, right? And they keep going up and then you, you have to buy them back. It's a short squeeze in BMWs or Euro dollars in this example. My point is, is that um, the, the, the marketplace is bigger than the participants of the marketplace. And so therefore the participants can be, can be made to make decisions that seem irrational um, in price function, but are rational in terms of their P&L. Like they're forced to do things they don't want to do. Like all of us, all the time at some point. Noel, how do you think about short squeezes uh, and particularly like what we've seen this year where there's a lot of stocks that you know no one's ever heard of, but they go up 200% in mm -hmm. a few weeks. And I noticed a lot of uh, the SPACs that de-SPAC can skyrocket because there's such a high redemption rate that there's only like a million or two million shares out. And then they get, you know, people buy a lot of call options. People are stuck short, and then it goes from you know ten dollars to seven dollars to thirty dollars. Do you ever get involved in stuff like that, or is that sort of too small for you? The real answer is it's too small for me. Um, yeah, there there can be edge in there, and those trades can be legitimate. Um, but you know, if if you're buying gold rings at the pawn shop and then selling them retail, fine, maybe you made a thousand percent. But you know, you're not buying gold bullion. You know, by the by the kilo, uh, by the ton and making a thousand percent. It just can't be done. Yeah. There's it's only so much you can do of the trade. once you get too big, it's just the trade is not big enough. Yeah, exactly. All right. No, well, well um, as you reach a close, what would, do you have a, a parting message for the audience? Um, right now the market is pretty fairly priced, you know, being, you know, hovering around this 4,000 level where there's a lot of options that are struck there is kind of a, you know, a little bit of a tractor beam pulling the market toward it. Um, we're not going to break materially above it or below it. Um, unless new information comes out by the time everybody watches or hears this, uh, which will be after FOMC. Uh, if Powell says something again, out of consensus and in exceedance, then fine, we will get a, a move. But assuming that he knows exactly what he's going to say, and most of the data between now and tomorrow has been basically leaked either to the press or to the relevant parties, then um, the options market is reflecting that that data is not going to be out of consensus. The options market is not reaching for um, insurance, and there's no mathematical reason to be overly worried here now from these prices. Again, not from six months ago or some other you know fake trade that you want to try to pretend like you know ahead of time. I'm talking about here today, now, what's the trade? It's pretty fairly priced. And if I had to lean one way or the other, I'd probably lean a little bit long. Um, and that that's what I think is the most sensible based on the information I have as I sit. You'd probably say so you'd probably lean a little bit more long the delta of the S&P 500 to own the underlying S&P 500 and perhaps a little bit, you'd lean a little bit less long volatility of the S&P 500. 
Yes. And that, that, that opinion has been borne out in my book as well. You know, some of the hedges that we've had on have not uh, worked to expectations. Now, vol has gone up in 2022, but if you look at it relative to other market drawdowns, it has gone up considerably less. That's actually maybe the, 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 the sleeper story of the year. Um, it, you know, there's a lot of things that have happened in 2022, but the reaction function of market goes down, option prices of option volatility goes up has been very muted. And, um, you know, as a volatility guy, that is very relevant to my business. All right. I've got a question. Is it, is it that the, uh, S and P 500 realized volatility is muted relative to the single stock, uh, realized volatility, or is it that the implied volatility, which you'd expect to spike as we saw in 2020, it's like, you know, if, if, if someone falls, you know, the first five feet from a building, like they're probably going to fall the next five feet. Right. Uh, that effect implied volatility is not spiking as realized volatility is, is spiking in in the index. I know it's both, but which is more important. What's more important is what is the ratio between those two and where did you buy it? So what, what has happened is realized volatility has often exceeded implied volatility this year, which is kind of rare. Um, yes. So if you're just long a bunch of gamma every day, so you, know, you buy a bunch of like say weekly S&P 500 straddles and you go to bed flat, you wake up with a delta, you hedge your delta, you rinse, repeat, that's for making money, which is frankly, a really easy living. One of the easiest ways to make money in 2022 so far has has been just to be long a bunch of volatility, scalp it at some point during the day. You know, you put, you set your parameters, you know, down one standard deviation or up one standard deviation. You hedge out your deltas and go back to sleep. It's a piece of cake. It's been a very easy living. Um, But the forward volatility, if you look at, you know, Jan, uh, VIX futures, they're like $28. So uh, going back to exceedance, you know, what's the chance you buy a bunch of volatility now, you sit on it to Janet and you make money? I don't think it's that high. I mean, we, we'd have to realize considerably more because it's going to, to, to decline, right? It's going to, to, to uh, decay. So you have to take into account time and volatility and the vol path. And yeah. those three things are going to be difficult to overcome barring new, new information like you know, uh, inflation goes to 12%. You know, we go to a kinetic war with Russia. We go to a kinetic war uh, with China and Taiwan or something. Um, barring that new, new information, I don't think that's a good bet. I don't think it's a good trade. What about just earnings are really bad? And yeah, like what if, you know, we're a few days into the main, main series of earnings, but what about if, you know, companies are not making money because their, pro- their, their revenues are going down and their costs are going up. Okay, so let's look at Walmart. How much did Walmart go down? 10%. Why do they go down 10%? Well, because they said they have too much stuff. So what happens when you have too much stuff? You lower the prices to get rid of your stuff. What happens when you lower in prices? Inflation goes down. So when inflation goes down, ex- inflation expectations go down. So what happens when the, the port of uh, Long Beach starts to you know get rid of some of their clogs? This stuff starts moving. That will attenuate inflation. It will be born in the prices and it will probably be, be, be bullish for the market. You know, Target's going to come out and it's going to be the same stuff. You'll see that the stuff that they thought they needed to move is going to come down in price. And the stuff that you need, like gas, maybe it doesn't, right? Um, the stuff that you might want, like, you know, uh, Kindles, uh, they can't give those things away fast enough right now. And that's going to equilibrate into uh, a lower, because that's happening on a wholesale level now. On a, on a retail level, that'll be born out in the future that will come out. And I think inflation will come down from there. Again, this is a, this is a bull case. Yes. And like a lot of companies, 
the things that have gone up the most, like I think eggs are up, you know, 33%, like cereals up 25% or something like that year over year. Like that's used by individual people like you and me, but Mm -hmm. like Google or Apple does not necessarily consume eggs as it's cost, cost of goods sold, you know? Right. Exactly. Which is why yeah. Apple stock has been, you know, such a great, Apple, Google stock has been so great. Um, but if you, if you look at, you know, the retailers like Walmart or whatever else, uh, Target, you will see that the way to interpret their prices is that they're going to be making less money, which is why the stock went down. But how they clear this excess inventory is to sell their product for less than they currently are selling it for in aggregate. And so they have to sell each unit for a little bit less so they get rid of it. And what that'll do is it will compress prices in time. Mm-hmm. Do you, so I, I know you're, you're, you're a volatility expert and you're not, you don't make trades necessarily based on macroeconomics, r- rarely if ever. But do you think that we're headed for a recession? How do you feel about the fact that the recession call is so mainstream as evidenced by, I was watching CNBC the other day and Jim Cramer had like a re- recession basket. It's like a, a, a flavor of salsa. So there was mild, like hot, and then extra spicy hot. Uh, and then also, which if you think there's recession, which do you think it's going to be? Which flavor of salsa? Mild, hot, or spicy hot? Um, I think that it is politically expedient for Paul to not break everything. Um, you know, everybody loves to bang on Kramer because he's wrong a lot. I, I've met the guy. He's a very smart guy. You know, I agree. He, you know, so people love to like, just hate on him because he says some, st- some stock and he's totally wrong about it. But he's a smart And dude. also, like, he is the market in the same way. Like, let's say that this show like four guys became the most popular finance show in the world. Mm-hmm. Of course you would not get alpha from it because I'm talking about things that affects the broadest people. So it's like in the same way that everyone, you know, shorts, uh, shorts the bottom and buys the top. Like, yeah, that's what Kramer's going to do because you do it. P- person watching, right? You are him. He is you. Yeah. He right. is beta. He's not alpha. And right. he's, he's, he's a got very a tough smart gig. guy. I agree. Yeah. He's got a, he's got a tough gig. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of the, the, the depth of the recession, which is, so the depth of the recession means, when do we pivot? If we pivot at all, which is really the essence of this trade. So if you were to blow off everything in this interview and um, focus on the thing that is most actionable, it would be to accurately predict if and or when the Fed will pivot. What is the terminal rate? And then when do we change that? Um, and part of that is politics. And the reason it's politics is because we have a midterm election coming up in November. Um, right now, it's pred- predicted that the Democrats will, will suffer. And then that will in turn, be difficult for Paul and his cadre. I don't know. I'm not part of that club, but I would say that um, it is in Paul's best interest to have the market go down enough so the ratio between uh, real rates and nominal rates compresses so as to manage things. And he's kind of doing it. You know, the market went down a lot because they were behind the curve, but the idea that we have a negative GDP tomorrow and whatever the definition, the new definition of recession is, um, but the old definition was two consecutive quarters. Um, that I think is going to happen. So are we in a recession right now? Yes. Um, is that recession have to be end of the world? No. How do you trade it? You have to time the, the pivot if there is a pivot. Uh, right now, the market says that pivot happens in winter. I don't know. So if the, if, the, if the recession is much deeper, will that pull the pivot forward? If the recession is shallow, will it push the, the pivot out? Your guess is as good as mine. I would guess that you know, next, or the Q1 next year feels about right. Is it tradable? Kind of tough. I would say that you don't want to be um, short the market here. That's why I think it's tradable. I mean, if you have to make a decision right now based on this conversation, buy spoos or sell spoos? Buy spoos. 
SPY or SP 500 ETF. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. No, you're kind of making me thinking that Powell could do a hundred, a hundred now, a hundred in September, a hundred in mm-hmm. August in, uh, uh, um, October, December, and then, and then pivot. I also think that the curve is pricing in a pretty rapid cu- series of cuts mm-hmm. after the hike when generally they, they hike and then they stay stagnant for, I mean, it's only a matter of like eight months before they start cutting again, which is itself uh, remarkable. But yeah, I think he, Powell can't, you know, get to 5% in December and then immediately start cutting. He has to do at least some, he has to pretend at least to stay steady for a while. I think that the, most of the theater that has to happen has to happen between now and the midterms. Because once, you know, the, the deck chairs have been reshuffled politically, um, it is not imminent that he gets fired and someone else gets his job. Um, so I think that most of the pressure he's getting from above is coming between now and will heat up before the midterm elections. Right. But yeah. And he's sort of being used as a scapegoat. Like totally. everyone is just blaming him like, Hey, Powell, what's going on, man? You're the one who single-handedly, you have that iPhone and you get to input the inflation number. Why are you inputting a high inflation number? Yeah. <laughs> it's like every, everyone wants more drugs, but you know, or, you know, alcohol in the punch bowl. But when, you know, Paul says something like I have to take some alcohol out of the punch bowl, everyone's like, well, you're being a party pooper. Why, you know, party's awesome. We need to keep more, you know, yeah. you know everyone loves hating on the guy, but again, he has a very hard job. I, I agree. And I think, yes, the Fed is behind the curve and they made a mistake. But there are people who said the Fed was behind the curve. And then as soon as Powell started hiking, they said, you're doing too much. You're doing too much. And it's like, exactly. Powell can't win. Wh- wh- which which is why, you know, what I've said, which is tell me what's actionable. Because for every argument, yeah. you can hear an equally compelling counter argument. Um, yeah. I've been doing this for so long and I've heard so many great, compelling, you know, ideas and stories as to why X, Y, Z is going to go up or down and just watch them just totally not work. Like we discussed earlier, you know, the Herbalife short from Bill Ackman, that's a, that's a very convincing story. I sold some Herbalife based on what he was doing. It didn't work. It didn't work for him. It didn't work for me. Um, Valiant, you know, that was a great trade for me, but it was a bad trade for him. And it was a different narrative. Um, there are innumerable stories like that. So I always like to gravitate toward, okay, shut up. Tell me what to do. Cause if you're not telling yeah. me what to do, why am I listening to you? And that's why I've tried to give a little bit more of a specific answer as opposed to like, well, rates are going to go up, but then they're going to go down or they're going to go down. Yeah, then they're I gonna go up. Yeah, I, yeah. I really like that specificity. And you know, no, when I'm talking to someone, I can tell, I mean, pretty much everyone I have on is, is like real and specific, but you take it to another level. But when I'm talking to someone who's like, or I'm watching another interview with a guest who's just like kind of wishy-washy, I can tell. And I think the audience can tell too. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Good. That's what I want to communicate. Yeah. Well, Noel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, people can find you on Twitter at Noel Convex. Uh, congratulations on getting over a thousand Twitter followers. Um, and yeah, uh, we'd love to have you back. Thanks for having me today. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.